Welcome to the Positively Alive podcast. I am so glad you made it, and I can't wait to introduce you to our distinguished panel of speakers. This is a space where you will be able to learn more about HIV and AIDS, about the latest medical developments and the tremendous progress that has been made over the last couple of years. We will also elaborate on what it means to live with HIV today and how it is possible to live not only a healthy, but also a happy life. I have carefully selected our interviewees. Over the course of the next weeks and months, you will hear the voices, insights and opinions of policymakers, activists, influencers and some of the world's top medical professionals on the topic of HIV and stigma. There will also be the stories of HIV-positive people and their personal experiences on what living with HIV actually means to them. The main purpose of this podcast is to inform, educate and empower, to get the topic out of the taboo zone, to normalize HIV and to stimulate an open conversation. It is also intended to counter ignorance, prejudice, stigma and discrimination that is all too often affecting the most vulnerable people in our societies. This podcast is also a part of a wider online communication campaign about HIV and stigma. If you want to know more, please join our Facebook group at Positively Alive or visit our website at www.positivelyalive.org. Thank you so much for being here and for tuning in. I really hope you will find our content useful and purposeful. Looking forward to see you inside. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Positively Alive podcast episode. Thank you for being with us once again. Today, we have a very special guest. His name is Edwin Cameron. He is a retired judge of the Constitutional Court of South Africa. Edwin is openly gay and HIV positive, living with the virus since 1985, a period in which antiretroviral medicine was not accessible to the less endowed in society. Edwin's realization that he owed his life to his relative wealth caused him to become a prominent HIV and AIDS activist in post-apartheid South Africa. Since disclosing that he was HIV positive in 1999, Judge Cameron remains the only senior South African official to have stated publicly that he is living with HIV. He co-founded the AIDS Consortium, which he chaired for the first three years. He was the first director of the AIDS Law Project and co-drafted the Charter of Rights on AIDS and HIV. He also advised the National Union of Mine Workers on HIV and AIDS and was involved in drafting the first comprehensive AIDS agreement for the industry with the Chamber of Mines. Throughout his career, Edwin Cameron has been named a legal giant, recognized for his brilliance, commitment to human rights and social justice, and his HIV and AIDS activism. He has received numerous awards, notably Transnet's HIV AIDS Champions Award in 2000, the San Francisco AIDS Foundation's Excellence in Leadership Award in 2003, Prize for Civil Courage of German Gay and Lesbi Lesbian Movement in 2007, winner of Brutner Prize, Yale University for Gay and Lesbian Scholarship in 2009, among many others. Judge Cameron, welcome to the podcast. It's an honor to have you here today with us. I'm very, very pleased to be involved in this. As a first uh, topic, I'd like to touch upon uh, being gay in mm. South Africa. Mm. Now, you have been very open about your sexual orientation since the 1980s, breaking ground as a senior public official in Africa. And your contributions have ensured the inclusion of an outright prohibition of discrimination based on sexual orientation in the South African constitution. 
And as a matter of fact, South Africa became the first jurisdiction in the world to protect LGBT community. Now, could you elaborate a little bit on your journey as a gay man in South Africa and then also what it has been for you to open up as a public official? Well, Jonathan, why that journey is important is that it's a journey that today, this morning, as we speak, people across Africa are taking. My journey was a journey of growing up with shame of being same-sex oriented, the shame of being different, the shame of knowing that that difference was something to do with your sexuality mm -hmm. and the shame of coming to terms with that, the wish to obliterate it, not to accept it, to be straight. So we, we grow up as LGBTI people in a heavily homophobic world and we spend the rest of our lives dealing with that. The question is how? So I came to terms with it just before I was 30 And I decided to speak out about being a proudly gay man. I decided to campaign for it politically as well. And I helped, mind you, with others. I cannot take any uh, sole credit by any means for what we achieved with the South African constitution. But at the time I came out, we were still being persecuted in South Africa. Police raids, raids on gay venues, people being trapped into solicitation. Mostly men, women were also being attacked and shamed. And in 1987, the apartheid government actually had a parliamentary committee to explore making heavier the criminal penalties against LGBTI wow. people. Now, that history, as I said, is important because across Africa, on our borders, mm -hmm. Lesotho, Botswana, Botswana's just had a high court judgment, which I understand is being appealed, which has struck down the criminal prohibitions. Namibia, Zimbabwe, Mozambique has, has abolished it. But across the rest of Africa, there's still the hatred, the shame, the repression, and too often the violence. Violence against lesbians, violence against transgender people, violence against gay men, imprisonment, prison sentences, whole rooms of people being arrested in Egypt. So the spirit of hatred, repression, violence, and persecution lives across, across Africa And that is why I still speak out about this so, so vigorously. But in South, within South Africa, it's, it's better today. It's not. It's much better, but it's not great. It depends on your race and where you live and your class and your means. If you're a white male or a black male or a black woman living in a middle class area of Santon, you're probably okay. But if you're living in a township and you're a lesbian, you may be at very great risk. And we are still having regular murders committed against wow. women because they are same-sex oriented. Yeah. So But it depends where you are. Same-sex marriage has been legal in South Africa since 2006, if I'm not mistaken, right? But that's the law. Now, yeah. public opinion has, as you said, not entirely followed. And is, public do you believe opinion has followed. Sorry for interrupting you, Jonathan. It has followed. In fact, what has happened in South Africa is most remarkable. It says to us something about the law because we had this very ambitious constitution which was put on as a beacon of hope onto a very fractured, injured, broken, semi-broken society. But what the sexual orientation clause has shown is that public opinion has shifted enormously. Around about 50% of South Africans now think that homosexuality should be accepted, and a bigger proportion, even those who don't think it should be accepted, accept and believe that it should be protected constitutionally. These are enormous breakthroughs in Absolutely, our yeah. Do you think that South Africa can act as a role model for the rest of Africa in this, in this sense? I think so, yes, but I say it with a lot of humility. We thought we were a role model in so many things, and we 
We, we, we're showing that we've also got problems of corruption, institutional degradation of, of very bad leadership. But I do think that on the LGBTI issue, our legal protections and our social protections can be an example. But more important than that, Jonathan, this brings us to our theme about HIV and mm-hmm. AIDS, is self-identification. More important than South Africa's example, the laws, blah, 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 is when a Tanzanian man or woman or transgender person stands up and says, I'm LGBTI. Ugandan, Nigerian, at astonishing risk, real astonishing risk. Nigeria, 14 years if you plead for gay and lesbian equality. So when people self-identify, they change the world around them. They change their families. They change their workplaces. So that's what, what is happening in the rest of Africa. And that's what's going to change it. Absolutely. Now, if you talk about, you just touched upon HIV and AIDS. Now, the epidemic in South Africa has had devastating consequences. 3.7 million people have died since the outbreak of the epidemic. And I think the annual deaths have decreased from 325,000 in 2006 to 115,000 in 2018, which is okay, but the war is far from over. Now, today, 7 million people in South Africa live with HIV, which is approximately 13.1% of the total population. Experts worldwide have warned against dangerous complacency as the biggest threat to ending the war against HIV and AIDS. Now, from your perspective, how valid is this this statement uh, when it comes to South Africa? About complacency? Yeah. The complacency is tied up with the other issue that we've been speaking about, which is shame and internalization of shame. I think we have an official response. We have an official commitment. We have public statements from people in leading positions about HIV. We have corporate buy-in. We have media buy-in. But we have a largely silent epidemic of 7 million people. (laughs) I speak out because I'm in a privileged and protected position. I've got my judge's salary. I've got my beautiful judge's position. I've got social esteem protecting me. Most of the people who speak out in South Africa are working class people without those protections. And that was originally what made me speak out when a very poor, impoverished, unprotected woman, Gugud Lamini, spoke out in 1998 and was killed for it in Durban. So we have people speaking out, but we still have a largely silent epidemic. We have no middle class uh, proponents and exponents and, and spokespeople. We don't have the singers, the soccer players the provincial leaders, the national leaders, the politicians, the politicians, we want them, the entertainers, the television stars who say, yes, yeah, sure, I'm living with HIV. I'm one of 7 million. So the, I would not say there's complacency. I would say there's silence. And I'm hoping that this project that you've asked me to become involved mm-hmm. in will deal with the silence and through the silence, the complacency. Yeah, but you were one of the uh, the only one in in, Af- in South Africa and in in Africa to open up about HIV as a senior public official. Why do you think it's so difficult for others to follow in your footsteps? Five letter word shame, six letter word stigma. Stigma is the externalization of shame. It's discrimination. It's rejection. It's ostracism. It's social partitioning. Branding people. She slept around. She's a sex worker, he was unfaithful, or he, he did the he's gay, or she's lesbian, whatever it is. That's stigma. But the internalization of stigma is even more powerful. I know from what you've said to me that you and I agree on that. So I think that the biggest issue is shame. We've got the laws. We've mm-hmm. got protection. We've got the medication. We know. 
I've been living on medication now since November 1997. It's almost 22 years. I've got a vigorous, strong, active life with a heavy job, heavy work commitments. I managed to fulfill them with joy mm-hmm. and with, with friendships and, and, and a home life because of medication. So we know that we can beat this virus. We know that we've got the laws that protect us, and yet people are shamed into continuing silence. That's the reason. Now, I was going to an article uh, earlier this week, and the author of the article uh, said, AIDS, the acronym stands for Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome. But he also said it could stand for for another couple of words, which he labeled as abuse, ignorance, denial, and stigma. And he said that those four words have basically uh, led to the infection of almost 20% of the adult population in South Africa. Is that a valid point to make or is he he exaggerating? I think it's a valid point. It's made in vivid language. I'm a lawyer, so I wouldn't (laughs) wouldn't endorse all the language, but I think it's a legitimate point. And I would bring it back again to the point I've been making and that I know you share. I would say that if there were less fear and stigma, cancer, diabetes… When Absolutely. you hear that your friend has got insulin diabetes, you say, get to the doctor. Either get a, a diet intervention or get onto insulin. There's no beating about, but can I ask my friend if they've got HIV? Dare I speak to her about whether her partner has infected her? Can we speak about safer sex? Maybe my friend is sick from a different reason. I can't speak to my friend. We, we cloak the whole disease in shame. So I agree with that young person who made that statement that a lot of new infections are from abuse, ignorance, denial, and stigma. I agree that a lot of people are scared to go on to treatment, to speak about it, Mm -hmm. to accept counseling. You can still have sex. You can still have a baby. Live a normal life, absolutely. You can lead an entirely normal life with relatively minor adjustments with HIV, especially if you're on medication. The evidence is now medically and internationally accepted that you cannot pass on HIV if you are on successful treatment. So all of those facts we need to get out there, but the impediment is the silence and the shame. Yeah. Now, the HIV and AIDS epidemic has Holocaust proportions when you look at the number of deaths it's, it's, it's provoked. My question is, in South Africa, how would you evaluate the government's response to this epidemic? Well, we, we learned a painful history in South Africa. The shame that we're speaking about impelled President Mbeki to deny that there was an epidemic of viral sexually transmitted disease in in Africa. He said, you're telling us this because we're black. You're telling us this because we're poor. It was a terrible mistake. It had nothing to do with poverty or blackness because in West Africa, we don't have an epidemic. So it's got nothing to do with blackness or how Mm. black people have sex. That was President Mbeki's mistake. After President Mbeki left, we got a period of governmental openness, a very vigorous, outspoken health minister, Dr. Erin Watsmaledi. We got a good national rollout. We got good support from the United States from PEPFAR. We got good support from the drug companies. So we have a very effective national program. Three and a half million people like me are on the ARVs, but still there are another three and a half million people who aren't. So I I think we have no reason for self-congratulation, no reason for self-satisfaction. We've still got too far to go to get people tested, to get them onto treatment, to get them counseling, and to stop the shame and to stop the stigma. Yeah. Some people talk about a nationwide counteroffensive being absolutely necessary. And some even go further saying that it should motivate HIV testing 
making it a prerequisite not only for free treatment if HIV positive, but also for things like voting, grant and tax rebate eligibility. Hmm. What is your opinion on that? Because it's quite controversial, obviously. It's doffed, Jonathan. <laughs> it's, it's one of those ideas where you could sit at your desk and think of an idea like that. It won't work. Because the moment you use coercion, the moment you don't say, come, this is a health-seeking intervention for your benefit. Absolutely. Your life will be better. You will empower yourself. Come and be tested. Come on to treatment. The moment you say you can't vote, people are going to say, well, then I won't vote. So it will have terribly uh, negative, very, very, very negative uh, repercussions. Any form of coercion for 35 years in this epidemic when the epidemic was originally seen as a gay man's disease of North America, Western Europe, and Australasia, we were counseling in Africa, don't coerce, don't criminalize, don't punish, don't stigmatize. And all those coercive measures, in fact, increase the stigma. Mm -hmm. They're very dangerous. Yeah. Now, I had an interesting conversation with Mark, who's present here. He's been an activist as well. His brother died of AIDS mm -hmm. in 1999, if I'm not mistaken. He was asking me yesterday if you would have to mm -hmm. choose one specific demographic to target uh, when it comes to education and, and empowering people, which one would it be? Because there's silence in a, in a lot of different segments of society. But are there specific groups that you believe, if you target them, you could probably like advance much, much faster? Definitely. Sexually active teenagers. We know okay. young kids are having, I call them kids. I don't patronize them. I tell them because I'm yeah, yeah, of 50 course. years older than them. <laughs> but young kids are having sex. They're having sex in schools, at schools. We need to target them with information, empowerment, and taking the shame away. We've got to make health-seeking choices, health-seeking behavior seem beneficial, seem normal. And we've got to make the risk of HIV seem normal. And I want to say one other thing, Jonathan. I've always been resistant to the war terminology, the terminology of counteroffensive, of full-scale attack, yeah. of fighting back, of war against AIDS. I think that's damaging. We've got to say, let us take this issue. It's a health issue like smoking. I accept that you can say we'll have a war on smoking, but it doesn't really help the person who no, smokes. No, it doesn't. Yeah. The person who smokes thinks that you're having a war against her or him. So I think we've got to have more inclusive social approaches that are less alarmist. We know that when you put an AIDS poster with red, it alarms people. They rather don't read it. Stop the alarming terminology. Stop the alarming slogans. And let's get to the fact that this is an endemic social problem. And it's not going to go away. We may find a magic bullet. We may find a cure like we hope they've just found for Ebola in the DRC. The new medications are shown to be 90% yep. effective. But we've been struggling for that for 35 years. We've been struggling for 35 years. The U.S. Attorney General, Surgeon General in 1985 said we we're on the verge of finding a cure. Well, thank you. That was 34 years ago. So I think we've got to see it as an endemic social problem that must be treated with long-term And holistically, from, yeah, from different angles, obviously. Yeah. Do you believe that at some point in South Africa, HIV testing will become as natural as relicensing your car or renewing your driver's license? I think we almost are there already. I, really? I do think so. I do think that there was a testing drive in 2009, 2010, where many millions of people, we know that some of them were double counted, but the figures were very impressive even so. 16 million people were tested. And of course, we need to replicate that almost every year. Sex sexually active people should be tested every year. So I think we're almost there. 
But healthcare workers are still stigmatizing people to some extent. I think most healthcare workers are are very accepting, very realistic about it. They've got it in their own families. They've got it in their own profession. Everyone's got it in their own families and their own profession. But still, we we have to normalize testing, normalize AIDS. Mm -hmm. When you disclosed your own status so many years ago, it was in 1999, if I'm not mistaken, right? How did you feel about going public? Were there any fears and did that translates in, into reality as well? And, and how has that play out uh, looking, looking backwards? I was absolutely terrified. And when you were telling me about your, your private uh, online Facebook uh, consultation and the love, affirmation, support you recently got, it mirrored what I got 20 years ago. Yeah. I really had severe fears. I was a newly appointed judge, five years in the job. We were a new, a new emerging democracy There was an enormous amount of shame, fear. We hadn't yet had President Mbeki's denialism, but I was very apprehensive. I was quite terrified, actually. I didn't want to do it. It was very difficult to do. That was a completely different time as well, back in the days. I eventually did it, and I was flooded. I've still flooded with people's expressions of gratitude in enveloping me with acceptance and, and affirmation. It's been... One of the most important choices I've ever made in my life was that choice to speak out about the fact that I'm living with HIV and that I'm on treatment and that I'm opposing stigma and promoting treatment and prevention. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's the same for me. I'd like to talk now about the criminalization based on sexual orientation. Now, we all know that laws can discriminate, but the largest form of criminalization of, of the people is one of the most important forms of discrimination. You have 69 countries nowadays that criminalize same-sex sexual relationships. Over 100 countries criminalize drug possession or drug use. I think 89 countries criminalize some, some form of sex work. And then there's 19 countries that deport non-nationals based on their HIV status. Now, these are not very promising statistics, are they? They have the common locus in stigma in discrimination, in marginalization. What do I have in common with a sex worker? The fact that mm -hmm. we, we value sex, that, that sex is a means for all of us of, of, of living. But in other ways, the important thing that I have in common with her is the fact that we both stigmatized. I as a gay man, I as someone with living with HIV, she is someone who earns uh, uh, her, her keep and, and feeds her children and parents through sex work. Terrible stigma directed to us, AIDS, HIV, gay man, and her. And all of the conditions that you mention are criminalized because of that. So criminalization is an expression of stigma, and in turn, it creates a vicious circle by reinforcing stigma. So the criminalization of LGBTI people is a moral expression of societal rejection and stigma. It's completely irrational because we know that every single society yeah, course, in the world... And it affects Muslim. the most vulnerable people in society as well. Exactly. Yeah. Um, We're talking about LGBTI now. Every family. If you've got a family of 10 people, then you know that at least one of those family members, you may not know who it is. But with certainty, we can say that one in 10 people in the world is either partly or wholly LGBTI, uh, or same-sex oriented, or transgender or intersex. Yeah. 
Last month in, in July, here in Johannesburg, there was the annual Africa Regional Judges Forum. You discussed progress, challenges, um, the status of latest developments in the human rights approach to HIV and tuberculosis. You had an opening statement, and I'm going to quote you. You said, uh, despite the progress in HIV prevention, prevention treatment and care, especially in the, in the availability of antiretroviral medicine, the HIV epidemic is unfortunately here to stay for the foreseeable future. In particular, HIV continues to be treated exceptionally because of the destructive power of stigma. Now, we've spoken about stigma already, but what role can you play as judges mm. to make sure that injustice, irrationality and fear and, and, and ignorance do not triumph? I think judges can do what they're trained to do. When you apply the law, there are two things, rationality and logic. And then there's a further thing, fairness and justice. Mm -hmm. Those are the criteria of the law. When you get a contract, when you get a criminal case, you say fairness. This person may be guilty, but I'm going to give him a chance to explain himself, to be defended. Logic, fairness, elementary principles of justice. When you apply them to HIV and AIDS, you won't have these criminal statutes. The Columbia Constitutional Court has just struck down the statute criminalizing it on these very premises that it's irrational, unfair, and stigmatizing. So I ask all my fellow judges and lawyers everywhere in the world to do what you do every day in your courtroom. Apply elementary logic. When a criminal tells you a bad story and says, I was at place X when he or she was seen at place Y, you apply logic and say, you couldn't have been there. I've got to determine who's telling the truth and who's lying. Apply the same logic to HIV and AIDS, apply the same rationality, the same basic principles of justice and fairness, and we will not have discrimination, <laughs> we will not have persecution. Do you feel that's already the case, or there's still a lot of work to do? We've in this got respect? a lot of work to do, as with all human conditions. I think the world has become a worse place for fairness and reason and logic. Mm -hmm. I think in Europe, I think in North America, I think in some parts of, of our continent, We have leaders who are defying the principles of fairness Absolutely. and dignity and rationality and logic. So it's become a harder job, but it's a job that we've got to keep doing. Before I get to my last question, I'd like to touch upon you as you, as undetectable, as untransmittable. We touched upon a little bit, but how much has this concept really filtered through in South Africa? And to what extent do you believe that this enormous medical breakthrough, in my view, can help end the fight against uh, HIV? I think it is key. I think it is key, and we haven't yet exploited it enough. We haven't brought home to people. Mm. You really can't get it from me. The virus is at a dead stop in my exactly, body. Yeah. You can prick my blood, you can take my semen or my sputum or my bodily fluids. You won't find it there. You might find the anti. You will find the antibodies. So we can still use that more productively. But I think it's part of the broader campaign with which I understand that you're involved, yeah. which is to destigmatize, to rationalize to normalize. Mm. Okay, so in five days, you are stepping down as a judge uh, of the Constitutional Court of South Africa. Now, looking back, what would you describe as your major accomplishments? I think my major accomplishment was to work hard. I worked hard. This is <laughs> Tuesday will be the, the anniversary of the 25th year of my appointment. It's been a huge privilege to oh. serve as a judge of the High Court, then of the Appeal Court, and then the last 11 years of the Constitutional Court. And the only truthful thing I can say is that I really, really have worked hard. I've tried my best. I haven't always done well. I haven't always done the right thing. 
but I really, truly, honestly have done my best. People have called you a legal giant in South Africa, so I suppose you have done quite, uh, or quite made quite some accomplishments. No, what is in, in tune for you for the future? I hope to stay busy. Uh, I hope to stay busy with advocacy work in AIDS and HIV, LGBTI, rule of law, constitutionalism. There's a lot of work to do. I'm involved in prisons, prison work as well. I think that's an important feature of any society is what your prisons are like. So it looks as though I'm going to be busy. At the moment, I fear as though I'm, I'm going to be busier than I am as a, as a constitutional court judge. <laughs> okay. Judge Cameron, thank you very much thank for your participation in the podcast. Thank you thank so much. You. So yes, a big, big thank you to Edwin Cameron for coming on this podcast and for sharing so openly and passionately about himself and the impact his work has had on the lives of people living with HIV today. The interview was excellent and Edwin's answers timely, eye-opening and highly relevant. I learned a great deal about him, not only as a former senior South African public official, paving the path for a juster and more inclusive society for the LGBT community, as well as HIV positive people, but also as a person. In only one hour, he has shown us what an amazing human being he is, living by the highest standards of integrity. Being in his presence was a deeply humbling experience for me, and I hope for you too. Thank you so much, Edwin Cameron. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and that you learned something. If you haven't done so already, please join our Positively Alive Facebook group, specifically set up for this global campaign. It is a place where we raise awareness about HIV and educate people to counter prejudice, taboo and stigma. Whether you are HIV positive or not, our growing community is for everyone interested in learning more about the topic and to share positive and uplifting messages. Check also the Positively Alive YouTube channel where we upload a reduced video version of this podcast interview with the most important messages. I would also love it if you review this podcast and share your thoughts across social media. Let people know that you subscribed to the Positively Alive podcast. The more it gets shared, the more people we will reach and that is ultimately the intention of this podcast. You can tag me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter and let me know what you have learned from this. I am so looking forward to share with you our next episode. I also take this opportunity to reiterate and underline the importance of your personal financial contributions to this campaign. Never before in history have we been so close to a vaccine for HIV. Strangely enough, however, we see the national and international donor community pulling back, thinking that everything is in the pocket already. It is not yet in the pocket. We cannot afford a funding crisis right now, not when we are this close to ending the epidemic. A society without HIV where our children can be vaccinated against the virus, how cool would that be? And how much money this would save us as a society? So from a place of humility and love, please be generous with your donations. You can find the donation link in the text area of this podcast, on our Facebook page, on all our other social media channels and on our website www.positivelyalive.org. I count on you and so does the world. Thank you so much.